is the evidence that Tony Fauci used to say everybody in America has to use this super expensive drug to treat oh, he, all he, COVID. Yeah, he flat out lied. All I knew is he lied. In the memo, he said it was proven safe and effective against the Ebola virus, only to find out halfway through this one-year study, the safety board found it to be the least effective and the most dangerous. And this is the statistic. It was the only drug in the trial, Robin, that when they gave all these Africans the drug, all these innocent Africans, it was the only experimental drug that led to more than 50% of those people dying. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. And I think you guys are going to be really excited to hear from Dr. Brian Artis. He's one of the most articulate voices who've been ringing the bell and calling attention to the various pieces of the fraud. It's all very complex fraud. And um, Dr. Artis, I want to thank you because even though I probably already had 2,000 hours of research in, at the time I learned this from you as a critical piece of the puzzle, to learn from you, it was probably only last summer. I don't know when you started ringing the bell or when, I think your father-in-law died in early 2020, and maybe you were talking about it the whole time, but thank you for calling attention to remdesivir because I never heard that from anybody until I heard it from you. Will you tell us your story of how you came to be aware of how incredibly toxic and dangerous remdesivir and how it's being used in the Fauci death protocol? Yeah, it's great. And thanks for having me on here, Robin. Uh, really, none of us ever anticipated to be on this platform or on this uh, level of, I don't even know what you want to call it, uh, trying to warn the world, I guess. But the world's taking notice on the messages that we uncovered. I didn't realize also that I was the only doctor, I guess, that looked at this information in May of 2020 and then just went into the media uh, like you. You know, you jumped ship, left Utah, went to Florida, devoted your whole life to something different than what you were probably doing there. And a lot of us have done the same thing. In February of 2020, my father-in-law, before COVID, came to Texas. My father-in-law, at 90 years old, living independently, walked into a hospital by himself, complaining of fever and a headache. Uh, this hospital in Dallas uh, actually diagnosed him with the flu. They called us on day two to tell us he now had pneumonia. Day three, they called us to say he was now going into acute kidney failure. Day five, they called us to say he was now unconscious and being put on a vent to be able to breathe because he couldn't breathe on his own. Uh, and that's when my wife and I went up to the hospital. Now, the reason why we didn't go up for the first five days is my wife's mother, who was like 87 at the time, she fell a day or two before my father-in-law went to the hospital, she fell and broke several vertebrae in her neck. So she was at a rehab center and we're hanging out with her at the rehab center when her dad walked into a hospital by himself. And when the diagnosis was phone called over to us at the rehab center where we were with her mother, when they said that they, that he had had the flu or diagnosed with the flu, the rehab center asked us not to go over there to go see him at the hospital and send some other family member because they didn't want us, Jane and I to bring the flu back to this rehab center that had a whole bunch of elderly people there. So in order to contain and not spread the flu, they said, can you just stay here and send some other family member there? Well, day by day, we were just getting updates about her dad. Well, on day five, I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> Every day we were getting reports that he was getting worse. So I went up there to find out what was going on only to find out that he actually never tested positive for the flu. In fact, he didn't po test positive for anything. They just said from his symptoms, they assumed he had the flu and it was a false negative test. But what they had him on was a drug called vancomycin in an IV bag on the IV stand along with his IV saline water. And when I saw vancomycin was actually prescribed to him and dripping into his veins, I don't know if you know this, Robin, but I knew it from my 20 years of clinical experience. Vancomycin causes acute kidney failure in 15 to 20 percent of all people you give it to. And I, I, I only know that from you saying that from watching your content go. Yeah, I, I don't, I'd already known this, but when I walked into the hospital room and saw that for the last three days, I'd gotten calls about his worsening acute kidney failure and not knowing why. Now I knew why he was in a, he was on a drug that actually causes that. So I waited till the next morning uh, and actually came back up and waited for the doctor to arrive. And I had him take me through every bit of his medical history. And that's when I found out he never tested positive for the flu. Uh, I then uh, wanted to see the pneumonia x-ray. Uh, the pneumonia x-ray from day two, it wasn't pneumonia. It was actually a straight line of water in the base of his lungs, which is called pulmonary edema. 
They'd actually, this was evidence that the drug vancomycin they were using, and the doctor told me the reason why he was on it was because it was a hospital protocol for the flu to use vancomycin, which is not true. But they vancomycin, they started them on day one, I found out, along with two other antibiotics, which do not treat viruses. They only treat bacteria, just so you know. Antibiotics are never warranted in a viral diagnosis ever. This is a horrible hospital protocol. So I call them out on all that. I said, show me day two's x-rays. He points out pneumonia. I said, that's not pneumonia. Pneumonia looks like cauliflower white splotches all over the lungs. This is a straight line of water. That means vancomycin from day one, per the protocol for the flu, was shutting down his kidneys within a 24-hour period. The water dripping into his veins, called a saline IV bag for fluids, is now being retained in his abdomen and in his lungs because he shut down his kidneys with vancomycin. And you're flooding his lungs and drowning him to death on day two. You called it pneumonia. It's actually pulmonary edema. Pulmonary edema means water in the lungs. I then asked him to show me every day his x-rays. And every day the water level got higher in his lungs that they were calling pneumonia. And it wasn't. So he was drowning to death, which has required him to be vented on day five, uh, which was the night before was when I was up there. This is day six. I asked him to show me his Lasix medications, which is a diuretic drug that helps you urinate out retaining water. If you have water standing in the body, you use Lasix to help push it out to your kidneys. And he looks at me and he goes, Dr. Artis, we've had him on Lasix the whole time. And I said, every day? Yeah. And I said, show me. So he pulls up the medication schedule for the first day to his shock. This is the attending doctor every day to his Shock and dismay. There's zero Lasix on day one administered. He just lied to my face and said, we've given it to him every day since he came in here. Day two, zero Lasix. Day three, zero Lasix. Day four, zero Lasix. Day five, zero Lasix. Day six in the morning, zero Lasix. And I looked at him and I said, why'd you lie to me? You better go get Lasix right now and have it put in him. He ran out of the room, went to the nurse's station within a minute. A nurse was in there to administer IV Lasix. And over the next four hours, Robin, he lost 20 pounds of water. He peed out 20 pounds of water. And all of his lung sounds of pneumonia disappeared per the respiratory therapist. They were able to take him off the forced air four hours later because there was no more standing water in his lungs. And he could breathe on his own for the next five and six hours. And then he became conscious because now he could breathe. We go home that night of the 6th. Knowing for five hours he's now conscious, can breathe on his own, no more need of the ventilator or forced air. And then the hospital called us at 9 o'clock that night after we were home to tell us that the hospital administrators and the attending doctors let the nurse's station know to notify my wife that they were permanently banning the switched protocols they made that day that made the improvements. And they were going back to the hospital protocols he'd been on for the first five days that were killing him. And that's when I lost it. I went up there that next morning. I was screaming and yelling at every nurse, every every doctor that was there. I mean, I was going crazy. I then got them to commit to putting him back on Lasix, putting him on a G-tube for feeding him because they had fed him in five days either. And then they threatened to kick me out of the hospital with security. But I would not leave until they made those commitments to me, that they were going to change back the protocols that we made the day before and put him on food. The moment I left and they escorted me with by security, they actually convinced my wife's family that uh, to not listen to the recommendations I made the day before that made the improvements. And they all witnessed them that they needed to go back to trusting the medical doctors in the hospital protocols that were his best bet for improvement. And, and I said, I screamed at them, if they go back on the protocols that we changed from yesterday, if they go back to what he was on before, he'll be dead the next 48 hours to 72 hours. They will kill him is what I said as they dragged me out through the hallway to escort me out. And that's what they did. 48 hours later, they said they needed to put him on a morphine drip. They called it palliative care. And they drugged him to death, overdosed him on morphine in four hours. Morphine paralyzes the diaphragm. You can't breathe. And it actually suppresses your heart's ability to beat. It paralyzes your central nervous system's control of your heart and your lungs. And they murdered him in front of my wife's family and me in four hours, overdosing him on morphine. This was the most traumatic thing I'd ever experienced in my whole life. Three months went by. All I did was plot how to murder and kill someone in every one of those doctors, nurses, and administrators' families. So they knew how I felt and how my wife felt, having someone stolen from them, murdered in front of them. 
Uh, and this is why I'm so bold, I think, in all of my talks. Uh, it's one of the things I hear nonstop. I'll be invited to medical societies. I'm a retired chiropractor. I retired the year and a half before COVID came. But I get invited by medical societies all over the country to come and speak and keynote their events. And I do. And they always introduce me as the most bold health professional out there speaking about this. And I think it's because I witnessed someone being murdered in a hospital who was close to me. And then I was kicked out of that hospital only to read three months after my father-in-law's death. Rest his soul, Weldon Frederick. May of 2020, I am reading reports that the American, that America has more deaths every day than any other country in the whole world from COVID-19. Supposedly, Robin, there is a deadly virus going around the whole world, but only one country is failing at keeping their citizens alive more than any other, and that's the United States of America. Every day in May, April and May, I was seeing these reports of record death totals in one day, higher than any other country. And I remember thinking in the middle of May, I was like, how is it possible America is failing in this COVID pandemic I wasn't paying attention to for three months? I was just pissed, plotting how to get away with murder, even though I never did it. But I was trying to figure out a way to get away with it, and I couldn't figure out how to get away with it. Uh, and then in May, May 14th, 2020, I decided I was going to figure out what they were doing in hospitals. So I actually went online to see what was being reported. If you remember March and April of 2020, New York City, everybody was talking about people dying in New York City. That was the epicenter of the COVID pandemic. And so I watched a whole bunch of press conferences from March and April of 2020 that were still online from CNN, Fox, ABC. It didn't matter where. I just watched them. Every single doctor said the same thing in these press conferences. As the journalist said, What's the experience with COVID-19? How deadly is it? What's happening to your patients? Blah, blah, blah. Every doctor said the same thing. We have never seen a respiratory virus ever do this before. From the moment we start treating this COVID-19 respiratory virus, the virus goes from the lungs to the kidneys and starts attacking the kidneys, causing acute kidney failure. And we're seeing acute, severe kidney failure on day three, four, and five of treatment. Now, I just have to tell you, after about the 10th interview where I heard this, uh, from the first one I heard, all I kept hearing was, that's interesting. Three months ago, I was called on day three with my father-in-law in the hospital to tell me that he was now in acute kidney failure, only to find out on day five and six, it was actually being caused by a drug they were giving him for the flu they said he had that he didn't have. So this day three, four, and five acute kidney failure, all these people were reporting in the media in New York, you don't think I was like, putting the dots together. Oh my God, they just did this to my father-in-law. Oh my God, they just did this to my father-in-law. And they kept saying in the media, we're not only short on ventilators to help these people breathe from this respiratory infection, we don't have enough dialysis machines to handle the acute kidney injury. I knew right away it wasn't the virus. It was some drug they were using, except I thought, Robin, it was vancomycin, this antibiotic. Now, how was I not going to think that? I just experienced this three months ago in a hospital. And these are all hospital deaths in New York. So I actually went to the CDC.gov's website that I've been on a billion times in my 20 years of practice. I went to CDC.gov, clicked the COVID-19 tab, and it says, we do not have, this is in May of 2020, we, the CDC, do not have a protocol for COVID-19 treatment. We have adopted the NIH's hospital protocol for COVID-19 Americans. Here's a hyperlink. So I clicked it, went to the NIH.gov's website, and this is where I saw for the first time ever the name Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he had this memo, said Dr. Anthony Fauci, COVID-19 hospitalized protocols. And it said that he, he actually stated, during this novel coronavirus, there's one drug and one drug only we're going to use to treat all COVID-19 positive Americans. And it's a, an experimental antiviral drug called remdesivir. And then he said there's two studies that support its use to be used in all hospitals in America for COVID-19. One, he said, was a study done with remdesivir against the Ebola virus in Africa. And there was a link to that study. And he said, I quote, it was proven safe and effective against the Ebola virus in Africa. In this study, here's the link. And then he said it was also proven safe and effective against the COVID-19 virus in a study done in March of 2020 by the maker of remdesivir called Gilead Sciences. And he had the link there also. And then the only other drugs even mentioned in this memo was 
No hospitals can use hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine because in an international study, they found COVID-19 patients, when you gave them hydroxychloroquine, they experienced heart failure leading to death. There was an increased risk of death from COVID-19 using hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. So, Robin, I'm reading this memo and I'm like, oh, well, at least I know the hospitals in New York aren't using hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, even though I know those have been FDA approved for decades. But that wasn't my concern. The doctors were saying in the media, we're seeing acute kidney failure. So I was just curious, what are they using? Well, per Anthony Fauci's memo, I knew they weren't using hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. So I didn't need to go look at those drugs. I just needed to know what's this remdesivir drug. So I clicked the first study to find out just how safe and effective was it. So right now, it's still on the New England Journal of Medicine, this actual study. There was four drugs in the study. I read the whole study. Halfway through the study, though, I knew that Anthony Fauci was lying. Because in the mortality section of the report, there's a safety board that's always assigned to an experimental research study. You've got four experimental drugs that are being used in four regions of Africa to treat Ebola virus patients. By the way, they used PCR tests to determine if these people were positive for Ebola or not, which it does not test for anyway. But that was the test uh, done in Ebola, for Ebola in Africa. What I couldn't believe was the safety board halfway through the study, looking at two data points, said that they determined remdesivir was ineffective and the most dangerous. So they pulled remdesivir from the study. And, didn't and, let this, and this is the evidence that Tony Fauci used to say everybody in America has to use this super expensive drug to treat oh, he, all he, COVID. Yeah, he flat out lied. All I knew is he lied. In the memo, he said it was proven safe and effective against the Ebola virus, only to find out halfway through this one-year study, the safety board found it to be the least effective and the most dangerous. And this is the statistic. It was the only drug in the trial, Robin, that when they gave all these Africans the drug, all these innocent Africans, it was the only experimental drug that led to more than 50% of those people dying. It's the only one. It had a death rate of 53% of all people they gave that drug to died. No other drug even had a 50% death rate. And, and Only as you one. mentioned, as you mentioned that Tony Fauci proclamation on May 1st of 2020 only had one other piece of data that you could click into. And it was a March 2020 COVID study. And it was very small and also terrible response from, yeah, from so Desiree, right? And that was the second one. The second one was in March of 2020. And that was done by Gilead Sciences. They took 53 patients with COVID-19 PCR tested from Canada, Japan, Germany, and America. And they gave them remdesivir for 10 days. And Gilead published their findings in March of 2020, two months before this memo. And their results were 31% of all people they gave that drug to between days five and 10 developed multiple organ failure, acute kidney failure, which is what they were saying in the media, acute kidney failure, septic shock, and hypotension. Two people had to come off the drug early because Remdesivir killed their kidneys. They needed emergency kidney transplants. That was the study. So 31% of all those people in five to 10 days, multiple organs failed and needed, some of them needed acute kidney transplants. So then I knew that Anthony Fauci was not only a liar, he was actually causing all of these people the acute kidney failure, which leads to death. I just watched this with my father-in-law. So when I heard all the reports that they didn't have enough ventilators, no kidding. They were shutting down. Acute kidney failure. They were causing failure of the kidneys, flooding their veins with water, with saline water. At the same time, they're pumping in their veins from Desivere. They were flooding their abdomens, their heart, and their lungs with water. They were calling it COVID pneumonia, which it wasn't. This is what they just did to my father-in-law. I just watched it. I could see the whole thing played out all over again, but on an entire nation scale. Because Anthony Fauci said in May of 2020, we are going to buy up all of the stock of this experimental drug from Gilead. And our federal government is not, he asked our federal government not to ship remdesivir to any other country or export it until the end of 2020. Why? He needed to kill a whole bunch of people in hospitals in America with this drug remdesivir and then sell you all the idea that people were dying in the hospital from a virus when in fact they were being poisoned to death with a drug known to cause kidney failure, liver failure. And now in October of 2021, we're like a year and a half later. The Cardiovascular Toxicology Journal published that remdesivir is more heart toxic and kills cells of the heart called cardiomyocytes 
and is more toxic to the heart than chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, which is what Anthony Fauci said in May of 2020 was his reason for not letting people use it. But remdesivir is more dangerous, kills the heart, leads to cardiac arrest is what they said in that document dated October 13th, 2021. And just a few weeks ago, Robin, the NIH updates two years later their recommendations for all COVID-19 hospitalized patients and the drugs to be chosen to treat them all. They only list one FDA-approved drug to be pumped into the veins of all Americans and hospitals in this country. Guess what drug that is? Remdesivir. Remdesivir. Okay, so I, I have some pieces that I've been putting together just because where I sit, I have some unique perspectives here. And there's two things that I want to talk to you about sure. that either one of them are really big topics. So I'm going to give you highlights of both. And one of them is that I believe that right now in front of maybe all state legislatures, which leads me to wonder if this is coming from way on high and being driven out by the lawyers who pump out legislative bills that are hundreds of pages thick. And none of these legislators in any of these states can possibly read them. They're lucky if they can even read the title and then the title sells these bills. I know there's one in Utah. It's passed the House Committee and the Senate Committee. It's passed the House and the Senate here in Florida. It's sitting on DeSantis's desk and we are frantically trying to get him to veto it. I know there's one in Maryland. I'm trying to figure out where they are in all the other states with all my waking hours here. But I believe what they're doing is they're codifying into law the Fauci death protocol. So that's one issue that I wanted to alert you to. And I'll be happy to share with you what I've got. And we should collaborate on how we can find it. Because like even the people who are in the medical freedom fight, because I'm very connected to them in Utah and I'm starting to be get, become well connected to them in Florida. Everybody should come to our speaking tour, Seven Cities of Florida. I'll put the flyer down below and get on the wait list. And we have Dr. Artis on the first, the Northern tour, which is four cities. We're super excited about that. We have so much going on. We have, we have a wait list of doctors who I know all of you would love to to hear from who we can't accept because we're so full on this tour. Floridians are excited about it because Florida is the last bastion of freedom. Texas, where you live too, of course. But here's the other thing I want to tell you. So I, two weeks ago, I have the stupid Omicron thing or whatever it is. Super sick. Somebody who follows me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's two days, not a thing, but I didn't feel very good. And somebody who follows me who is a physical therapist Drag me and she's a very assertive person. Love it. We need more assertive people. We need less sheep. We need more lions. So this lion of a former healthcare worker grabs me and she's like, you have to help this family. And what I'm finding, because that being involved in this family's case, which happened in Houston, by the way, way closer to you than me, has like a, a floodgate came down. And now I have talked to all these families who have lost a loved one. And there's several, there's a bunch of things that all these families have in common. And the thing that sorts them out from probably hundreds of thousands of people who this protocol that you were the first one out there yelling about it, trying to wake people up to it, trying to help people save their loved ones to make your pain become purpose. And I believe that your father-in-law's loss has saved countless lives. Problem is all these people, what they have in common is they have a, they have a brain artist. They have a fighter. They have a person who's not scared of people in white coats. They, they already didn't want remdesivir or the vent. They knew that. I mean, in 2020, like all the all the seniors were like, I just don't want the vent. And they that they knew that much. So I have all these people telling me their stories. And I, but I don't just have them on my show because like you're very media practiced or whatever. And these are people who've never been on a camera. And I can't do a podcast where I try to figure out all the details of the story. So I've spent two and a half hours with each of these families, like figuring out what their story is. It's gotten to the point where I've heard the same story with the same bizarre details that I almost think you won't believe me when I tell you this one thing I really want you to know because I think it's an important piece of the puzzle that I'm dreaming every night, like in the middle of the night, I'm in a hospital and I'm trying to save people and I'm trying to shake the doctors awake and I'm trying to tell them what remdesivir is, for instance. But here's another part of the protocol. It's almost not believable. All, not some, all of these families who have a fighter who... Their family member is dead. They have PTSD like you do. They're angry. Like everything that you're talking about, right? I'm a shrink. So like everything you're saying is like PTSD. It's classic anger, stages of grief. I'm talking to these people in the depth of their grief. They cry. They they say they can't sleep because they watch their family tortured. I, I have a 
37-year-old widow whose husband walked in from the parking lot thinking he was there to get a steroid and an antibiotic and walk back out, you know, kind of strapping guy, and he ends up dead. And with her saying, no remdesivir, no vent, and them saying, we're going to do it whether you want it or not, that's gotten that bad. So I literally think that legislation is going to codify and is trying to codify in law. So going over to the first topic, because believe it or not, I really am minimizing this and giving you guys just what you need to know. These laws will not only codify into law the Fauci death protocol and all 100% of these people have been told by healthcare workers, our hands are tied. And I'm talking medical doctors who say our hands are tied. We have to do this terrible thing to your loved one, or we can't sit him up in the bed. We can't take the mask off his face. We can't feed him or give him water. So that's one of the things they all have in common is that they there's a fighter in the family who's willing and was already awake. They had to be somewhat awake before their loved one even ended up in the hospital. Because otherwise, if you're all if you're all snoozing away, then your loved one dies and they call it COVID and you don't know any better. Okay, here's the thing I want to tell you that I think is a very important piece of the puzzle. Every single one of these families say that their loved one was denied water for days. And you don't have to be, you're a doctor, I'm not. You don't have to be a doctor to know that your kidneys need water. And then you add remdesivir. It is a recipe for death 100% of the time. All these people are being dehydrated. They're being intentionally dehydrated. It is part of the protocol. All of them were told, because it's almost unbelievable, I know. All of them are told, no, we can't give them any water. Because remember, these are people who are like, their loved one went in saying no to the vent. So that means that unlike most of the patients who are immediately intubated and then they're just you know, sedated and paralyzed and conked out, these are the people whose loved one can, even if their family members are kept out of the room, which I absolutely think is part of the part of the program here, but they're calling their loved one and they're texting them. They're saying, I'm so thirsty. Like no one will give me any water. All of them say real live healthcare workers are saying this. It's unbelievable, but true in every single case. We can't give them any water or they will aspirate. It's part of the protocol. So help yeah. me, help me get like, we, we need to call attention to this and people need to know they literally are dehydrating your loved one to death and they can do that in a couple of days flat. No, they're, they're malnourishing them and not feeding them. This is a huge problem. Uh, we have advocate teams working directly with my show, the Dr. Artist Show. You can actually contact several through our site, actually, which is what we're trying to do to protect as many people as possible. But it has been reported they're using a combination of things. So we know remdesivir causes multiple organ failure to the heart, liver, and kidneys, and it will do it in five to ten days all the time. The drug does that. It's its effect. It is a poison. Then they're using drugs to sedate your loved ones, to put them on a vent because this is the protocol. So they'll put these drugs everybody needs to pay attention to. They'll do combinations of fentanyl, morphine, midazolam, lorazepam, and a drug called Presidex. All five do what I explained earlier, morphine does to the body. These are drugs that paralyze the nervous system's control of your diaphragm so you can't breathe and reduces your heart rhythm so your heart can't beat to sustain life and pump oxygen through your body. They are also denying these individuals food. So they're not G-tube feeding these people, nothing. They're not giving them any nourishment whatsoever. And yes, of course, they're going to deny them water. They can't give them water if they got a tube going down their throat. It's disgusting what they're doing. So the tube is usually the vent. You have even to the ones, people even the ones who food. don't have a tube down their throat are being yeah. denied water. Well, they're going to deny them water. They're going to divide them food. They'll have them on a on an IV bag all the time. You watch. They'll do that because they're going to pump fluids into you while they shut down your kidneys with remdesivir. That's what they're doing. So they're not allowing them to drink. They're not giving them food. That is absolutely true. And how long can someone live without food and water? We know it's a week or less. That's the thing. So you're going to speed up their death uh, by actually denying them nourishment. And that's what they're doing around the, around the horn. I need to make sure everybody knows this. They will sedate your loved one to get them on the vent. That's a part of this protocol that Medicare is bribing all hospitals with a 20% bonus payout if they'll use remdesivir and follow the COVID protocols, including venting which requires sedative drugs. You can't if these laws it. pass, if these laws pass and they are being presented by the media as as bills to protect healthcare workers from being attacked. Well, that makes you think 
somebody's taken a knife to a nurse. None of us want that, right? That's not what these bills are. And these bills are passing because that's how it's being presented to the legislators too, who, like I said, don't have time to read it. What these bills are doing is criminalizing family members who, for instance, might want to sit their dad up because they notice that his oxygen saturation goes up when he sits up versus laying down. And a, a doctor or a nurse comes in and yells at them and evicts them from the hospital. People getting evicted from the hospital right and left in these stories. Yep. And I just want people to know that every day we're getting reports from loved ones, advocates, nurses, you name it, who are getting access to the individuals or information on their treatments. When they go to sedate your loved ones, everyone needs to know this. Remember, the hospitals are being incentivized to vent you and put you on remdesivir. So they get a 20% bonus on the whole bill the hospital does if they'll just do it. So to vent them, you have to put them on sedatives like I just mentioned, fentanyl, morphine, midazolam, lorazepam, and Presidex. What we're finding is as parents and patients and advocates request their loved ones to be taken off the vent, some docs in hospitals will pull the vent out and then show the patients and the loved ones and the advocates that the patient can't breathe. Like they physically can't breathe and their oxygen levels will drop and they'll say, look, we have to force the, the vent back in, the tube back in to vent them. That's this is torture. like their life support. I have to tell you, I tell every single person, look at their medication schedule. Those sedative drugs, they're increasing the dose every day the patient's in the hospital, every wow. day. And if wow. they can't contract their diaphragm to breathe, you're going to have to force air into the lungs with a machine. So I keep telling them, make sure you look at the sedative drugs and start reducing those sedative drugs so they can wake up and control their own breathing again. They're being paralyzed with a drug. Yeah, that is that is absolutely inhumane to put it is, a vent out. So traumatic to put a vent in. I mean, that's why they have to actually paralyze you, not just sedate you, paralyze you to get a plastic tube down in your lungs to pull it out, stand there and let the family watch the man suffer and then shove it back in. This this should be cr- considered criminal behavior. Oh, it is criminal. And in and in Florida, we've actually worked with advocacy teams to get Patients transferred from one hospital to another in Florida to change the protocols and be more open-minded about protocols, things that work and are more safe and effective. And hospitals are doing this when you demand a transfer if they won't actually do the things you're requesting and they find you annoying and irritating because you're advocating for the loved one. This is not a joke what they're doing in Florida and I promise around the country. They will then say, to reduce the likelihood of bacterial pneumonia occurring from the trach in the mouth, we have to surgically put it through their trach. So they cut them open, put the tube through their trach. This is not a joke. And then when they do that, they then tell the patient advocates and the other doctors awaiting for the transfer that now the patient cannot be moved because it's too traumatic, too yeah. much liability because there's a trach in the throat. We can't move them now. They don't even, they don't this even, this is how they're doing it. Them. A lot of these families are telling me other little shenanigans that they do, changing up meds, putting them on high flow oxygen, saying that the ambulance can't handle high flow oxygen, which is complete nonsense. I have a, I have a respiratory therapist who works in a huge hospital here in Florida who is my go to on all these things that I'm being told and why all these people are, who aren't even having breathing problems end up on BiPAP, high flow oxygen, then they're coughing up blood clots. I'm trying to put all these pieces together and it's fairly complex, but what's clear is it's bad medicine. It's being forced on people against their will. To your, to your point about the rising levels in the kidney of water, this poor woman, I'm going to say her name and you guys, I will put down in the show notes below. In addition to the Florida tour, you can get on the wait list. I know Tampa and Orlando are going to sell out in like two days. Um, so be on the wait list and then you'll be the first to know when we're ready to release tickets. And yes, we will have security. Yes, we know we have everybody who's in this fight in the same buildings. So we're, we're on it. Um, I'm going to put protocolkills.com where these people are telling their stories. And there's a woman named Brianna Ross that you need to read her story because she's, her husband is 37 years old. I told you he walked in. She talks about how traumatized she is. At the end, when they have killed him and there's 10 medical professionals standing over him way up above screaming and paddling him and he's bouncing and naked and he's bouncing off the the table. He had 65 pounds of edema in him and his urinary output bag 
had been completely empty for days. Told a, told a 37-year-old man who walked in on his own steam and just wanted an antibiotic and a steroid and an albuterol treatment from a nebulizer. They wait, exactly what he said, they sedate them, they put them on psychotropic drugs so that you just, you're weakened, you're out of it. And that's when they bully you onto the vent. And if you haven't accepted the remdesivir, that's when they bully you onto the remdesivir. But these laws are not only going to codify it and, and criminalize families, they're also going to make it so that the hospital can say, and real live medical doctors who went to medical school, who all y'all think as, of as the smartest people in our culture, real live medical doctors will say, you have to do this protocol or our hospital will get sued. That's how this scam works. Or the doctors will get fired by their administrators if they don't follow the protocol. That's the threat. Right. And some of these families tell me stories about being pulled sideways. Like if they can get a healthcare worker one-on-one, so many of them say, we're glad you're fighting for your family member. There aren't very many people who do, and we can't, or we've tried. And medical doctors who sit down with the family and say, I would love to go fight the ivermectin fight for you, but I've got my livelihood to think about. Like some of them just straight up say that. So we... We all need to be part of helping people wake up to this because it takes a fighter. It takes a threat. It takes getting involved in the legislative fight, plugging into the freedom groups on the ground. Like we don't have big funding and big organizations behind us. All the organizations seem to have been subverted to this. What, what do you think people can do? What do you think the highest impact things that your average person listening to this can do, Brian? Robin, I thought this show was sponsored by Pfizer. I yeah, thought you had big money back in this show. No. no, that's how I got. I, I got deleted off of Spotify. I'm I've been canceled kidding. by PayPal. No. <laughs> just kidding. You're right. This is all grassroots. You're not going to see Pfizer, Moderna. You're not going to see anybody, these big corporations supporting what we're doing, of course, obviously. You're or putting some connections you. together with Moderna and Pfizer and stuff. You want to talk about that? Yes. So one thing I would like to touch on, if people haven't watched this, are you aware, Robin, of the grand jury that Dr. Rainier Fulmick out of Germany is putting together right now? Yeah. Okay, so there's been three days of a grand jury. The third day was on Sunday, and I was asked to – I did a whole one-hour part of medical malpractice in that grand jury. Uh, The beginning of it was scientists from around the world discussing the PCR test and just how effective or ineffective it is at diagnosing uh, any viral infections of any kind. So they put that to rest, provided all their evidence, and then they asked me to be the first medical or health expert to discuss how – remdesivir and midazolam in the UK was being used to mass murder elderly people in the UK and then using remdesivir in the United States, uh, which is what they did in New York to set the stage of death is what they were doing, killing people with these drugs. When I got done with my presentation and I took every, I mean, I I ran them through a, a whole hour of slides of research studies, one after another and published documents from the FDA, CDC, and the NIH. Uh, and then I took them through the new emergency use authorization. I don't know if you know this, Robin, your audience needs to know. January 21st, Dr. Rainier didn't know this until I showed him and the judge and the whole audience uh, this weekend. But on January 21st, the FDA extended the emergency use authorization for remdesivir to be the only authorized drug to now be used to treat all pediatric age groups, including newborns in America. It's the only thing authorized for COVID-19. Yep. So now I have families who are telling me about the COVID protocol being forced on somebody who got a negative COVID test. I mean, we we all know like the problems with PCR tests. It's not even a test that's supposed to diagnose any specific infectious disease. But I ran a story a week or two ago. Guys, I'll put it down below in case you haven't heard it. And it was that they killed a husband and wife in Utah on the same day. And the wife was COVID negative. And so they took her to another facility, but they did all the COVID things to her and they told the family she had mild COVID. She was tested twice for COVID and it was negative. And so then they just said it's mild COVID, but they still get all the 20% for remdesivir and the third, I think she was intubated. That would be 39,000. You get 13,000 for putting COVID in the chart. You know, the CDC told us in 2020, told healthcare facilities, you don't actually have to even do the PCR test to call it COVID. This is like unprecedented in 
medical professionals' careers. But anyways, back to you. The federal government's giving a $9,000 bonus to the hospital, every hospital that gives one COVID-19 death diagnosis. So for every person that dies from COVID-19 that they can write on a death certificate, they get $9,000 bonus. Since when have we incentivized hospitals to give us a death certificate title or cause of any kind? Similar, just $9,000 made me think of it, but my brother... Uh, his best friend died. He had gotten three jobs. My brother had begged him not to try to give him information, but he got the three jobs. Two months later, he's diagnosed with rapid onset leukemia and he's full of blood clots and he dies. This is a man in his forties. My brother is going to go eulogize him. It's like two weeks ago. Goes to eulogize him and his jaw is on the ground when the family is telling the story that he died of COVID. So, FEMA gives you $9,000 towards the burial expenses, but you got to call it COVID. Oh, they so, give you 36000 if you have more than one person die in your family. You can have up to $36,000 for three members of your family die from COVID-19. And FEMA has a $2 billion fund that they're paying out for your funeral expenses, up to $9,000 per incident, up to 36000 per family. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. It's, so in this grand jury on, on uh, Sunday, I just wanted to mention that as I'm talking, I get through all my presentation, and then I actually just took a minute to explain to the group and to the judge and the jury and Dr. Rainier Fulmick and his team what happens when you shut down the kidneys in somebody. Because I watched it happen with my father. So I described exactly what happens. Your, your abdomen gets full of water, then your heart does, and then your lungs fill with fluid and you drown to death. It's called pulmonary edema. I said then they call it secondary COVID pneumonia. It's not pneumonia. It's pulmonary edema. So I'm talking about this. And then uh, they transitioned from me to John O'Looney, who's a funeral director in the UK. And they transitioned to him because I brought up midazolam and morphine being used as end-of-life programs per the UK parliament to kill people in nursing homes in March and April of 2020. And we've been blowing up that story, too. At the same time, they were pumping remdesivir into people in New York City, and they didn't even know what they were doing. It's just a trial with remdesivir to kill people. Uh, that's been exposed to. Well, John O'Looney goes, he's, he starts to talk about this idea that they're making everything COVID-19. He said he had a problem with this in 2020 because as a funeral director, he goes, I had one of the first people they wanted me to, to diagnose as COVID-19 death caused by COVID-19. This guy got ran over by a truck and he had tire tracks from his hip to his shoulder. He got ran over. And the chief coroner of the UK told me I had to label that as a COVID-19 death. <laughs> but he goes in to say, before I go into that, I just want to speak to what Dr. Artis was just saying. There's a tool that we use in preparing the bodies for burial. And you insert it into the abdomen and into the lung cavity of patients. And when I shoved it into everybody being treated for COVID-19 in 2020 and 2021, Every time I've taken that probe and inserted it into the abdomen, into the lungs of these uh, post-death COVID-19 treated patients, he said, in my 40 years of experience, I've never seen so much edema and water come flooding out of the lungs and out of the abdomen, just like he just described. It's exactly what I see. There's this massive amount of fluid buildup in the body, shutting down the kidneys the way they do with these drugs. Uh, and I remember sitting there wondering what he was going to say about my comments. And I was like, wow, well, I've never used that tool. I don't even remember what he called it. But this is a funeral director that can confirm everything he's saying or everything I'm saying. Uh, this It was just very disturbing. Uh, it's been very obvious. I mean, I watched it already. There's no way you can refute what it is. Uh, remdesivir by far is a drug proven to kill people. And they asked me, Dr. Rainier did, is there a connection between Anthony Fauci financially with Gilead Sciences? And I said, did you know that in February of 2020, Anthony Fauci and the NIH held a meeting. They invited 17 people to discuss what drug they were going to use to actually push to all Americans for COVID-19 treatment. And of the 17 people, 11 of them, 11 were executives from Gilead Sciences that makes remdesivir. And then I said, and everyone listening, judge, jury, and the entire world court audience, Y'all need to look at the connections of Gilead with a company called Genentech, which is also a, a subsidiary of Roche Company. You need to look at these companies because Gilead is owned by four major corporations, the two largest stakeholders 
are BlackRock and Vanguard. And I didn't have to say anything. They already know the connection to George Soros. He's the major stakeholder in both of those corporations and their ties to the NIH and Anthony Fauci. So I just let them know that this is the case. Yes. Now, Anthony Fauci and the NIH actually have royalties. They actually own a percentage of the patent on the Moderna mRNA vaccines. Isn't that amazing that he's promoting his own shots he owns as a solution to this COVID pandemic he's responsible for? Uh, Anyway, it's just disgusting. The whole thing is ridiculous and awful. I will tell you, people often ask me, do you think you've been successful at helping to save lives? Oh, I know I have. I know we have. We've actually stopped massive amounts of killings of hundreds of thousands of millions, I think, worldwide uh, around the world. Really, truly, I do, with all of our efforts to try to warn people. People are scared to death to go to a hospital. You don't think I've played a role in that? Yes, I'm not the only one. There's a whole bunch of us that uh, have been in that effort to do that. But I've been outright trying to warn as many people as possible to stay away from there. I will tell you the fact that you can mention that in Florida, they're thinking about writing into law these hospital protocols tells me we're winning because it's, people. It's not it's not just Florida. There's so they many. Need, they need. And if it's going to be a federal law, it's going to be nationwide. You watch. So they're going to continue to push their agenda, which is to create massive amounts of deaths of the elderly. They want to inflict infertility and miscarriages in pregnant women and those who are fertile. And then they want to target the young. And that's what they're doing right now with all these shots. Guaranteed. Another thing I'm hearing from these stories that I don't think is a story that's out there is that I believe that they hired a whole bunch of patient advocates. Now, what the patient advocate seems to do is it is this person goes into the family and usually by now the family's pretty traumatized. They've not been allowed in. I was dragged into this case in Texas because 10 days in the hospital and they hadn't even been allowed access to the man. And they also wanted him out of there. And so I said, it took me four days to even understand all the details and get it before I pulled the trigger on day five. And that hospital blew up with a thousand phone calls and we had protesters out front and Stu Peters helped me. And, and we got that guy out and we got his family in before we got him out. But then they changed the meds at the last minute and they hex the patient and they say, you're going to die in the car on the way home, which is a literally cruel and terrible thing to tell someone. And if that's the case, it's because they blew their alveoli of their lungs out with high flow oxygen treatments. But what I want to point out is that it looks to me like they hired patient advocates and, and people don't realize this. If the hospital is paying the patient advocate, they don't work for you. They aren't really advocating for you. If the hospital is paying their salary, they're advocating for the hospital. They're a hospital advocate who is, her job is to go buddy up to you and to keep you out of what they're doing to your patient. So it's another thing that I just felt like we should start talking about because there's a lot of, a lot of dots to connect here. So anything, any bombshell you want to drop on us about dots you're connecting with the, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines? Uh, just the fact that right now, remember yesterday was February 15th. Uh, today is February 16th. They were supposed to, the FDA meet yesterday to discuss authorizing all newborns, six months old and older to four-year-old to get these Pfizer shots. And I don't know if you saw it, but the FDA's decided to put that meeting on hold because they're concerned about the fact that the clinical data from the two-shot combo for COVID-19, children six months old to four-year-olds, they didn't like the data. They didn't think it was showing it to be as effective enough. I, I want everyone to know that they put this on hold, and there's some people that think this is a celebration. No, they, they actually told you why they put it on hold. They put it on hold because they're waiting till next month. There's a trial going on right now where they believe newborns or those six months old to four-year-olds need to have approved emergency use authorization for a combination of three Pfizer shots. So they're waiting for this clinical trial to finish where they're injecting six-month-old babies with a third shot of the Pfizer shot. And they want to see that data before they do it. And I just want you to know, uh, it is my opinion, they are all determining just how dangerous or lethal can they make this. And this is why they're putting it off. They want maximum detrimental effects in all newborns and children as much as possible. And they weren't getting it out of the low dose three milligram 
two shots for these kids. So they're going to make sure they get a, just a horrible side effects listed from a third shot. And then they want that to publish and then they're going to do it next month. You watch. We cannot do this enough. I cannot warn you enough. Also, I want you to know this morning I did a, a live show. Um, I just want you to know they are targeting children. They are specifically targeting black and Hispanic children right now in this country. They are actually putting in the media that there are uh, hospitalizations, deaths, and side effects from SARS-CoV-2 called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. It's a childhood-only disease that they say is mainly affecting black children younger than 12, males, and obese. And then they say, the CDC says, that they are actually allocating treatments specific to non-white and Hispanic ethnicities and races. That's what they say right now. Is this just trying to cover for all the myocarditis and pericarditis so they can move the deaths from one column to another and it looks better? Optics? No, I actually think this is a eugenics attempt to try to scare the parents of the black and Hispanic children who don't want to get their children vaccinated. They have to. Yeah, because they're they're the holdouts. They're they're the ones who won't do it. We we can't figure out why the black people all wear masks here, but then they don't get vaccinated. I'm still trying to figure that one out. So yep, yep. So I did a whole thing this morning, just showing how racist the CDC is, literally, and how racist the FDA is, and how racist the NIH is. And I actually took them through an article that was published on MedPage.com. They actually state on there and on the CDC's own website that non-white, so black and Hispanic children are more susceptible to getting this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, multiple organs of the body becoming inflamed, and it can lead to death. They say that's more diagnosed in black and Latino children if they get COVID-19. But in the same article, it says that the researcher who put together that information said, we actually had no ability to confirm if the children in the hospital diagnosed with this condition actually had COVID or not. Isn't that weird? So let's just call you know, it COVID because that's how do you what know it was. How do you know it was black? How do you know Latinos are more susceptible to this condition? And when you go onto the CDC's website right now, it says currently the majority of people, black and Hispanic, are the ones diagnosed with MIS-C after COVID. And the bar graph right below the statement, I actually asked a family nurse practitioner out of Hawaii this morning on my show to look at the bar graph and tell me which race is actually the most diagnosed with MIS-C. She's looking at it and she goes like this. Uh, It's obviously white. The bar graph for white was way taller than the black and Hispanic group. And I said, why does the CDC say right above the chart that blacks and Hispanics are the majority of those diagnosed with MIS-C when it's actually the whites? Why are they targeting and trying to scare the black and Hispanic population? Why? They also say get the job. The CDC also says that Hispanics and non-whites die more than any other race from COVID. So I pulled up the CDC's website and showed the graph. It is four times more white people have died than black people. It's five times more white people have died than Hispanic people. Why is the CDC lying to you and telling you that black people and Hispanic people are dying more than white people. It's because they want you to get the shots. They right. And they're not going to They want I you think, to do disease. This is a eugenics project. It hasn't I stopped. Think, I think it's less than 30% of black America got the job and it's less than 40% of Hispanics. So they're, you, they know that's a problem. They know that's an Achilles heel. They can't have all those black people and Hispanic people dying at lower rates, but they are dying at lower rates because they didn't wreck their innate immunity and, and turn their blood into jello. And I did show this chart on there from the CDC just yesterday. So the CDC shows that black people in America, it says that of all total cases, 38 million that had race designated with it, with this diagnosis, it said that black people showed a percentage of all cases since 2020. Black people in America represent 12.5% of the whole total COVID cases in America. And then it says right next to it, the percentage of black people in America is 12.45%. So it's the exact same representation as the percentage, but they're wanting the black people to think they're more in danger of being hospitalized than any other race. No, please be warned. They're lying to you. 
They're trying to scare you that you genetically are weaker and need to go get their vaccines when, in fact, you don't need to be experimented by them. They're lying to you. They are racist, and they are actually pointing you out, singling you out to scare you, and that is it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, all we can figure out from listening to our our black friends, and my husband is black, and he filled me in originally on the Tuskegee experiment years yeah. ago. Uh, they know they know that they have been experimented on and murdered by their government but white people think that we're too precious that anything like that could ever happen to us yeah oh yeah so i just want you to know that uh they are obviously this is a eugenics product project at the end of the grand jury if anybody wants to go watch that it was it was really great to be a part of but the judge asked me uh, do you believe that there's there is a real intent organized behind this covid pandemic to actually cause harm and death using these protocols. And my answer was straightforward. I said this, uh, your honor, it's textbook eugenics, which is by definition, there's a group of people who believe they're superior to an inferior group of people. So they set out to cause harm and death to that inferior group for whatever reason they see them as inferior. That's what they're doing. And they're targeting the elderly, the younger and uh, those who are fertile to give birth or have children. Well, I appreciate your courage. You don't arrive at a conclusion like that without seeing hundreds of data points all leading the same direction. I was just debating this this week with my friend, Jeff Childers, who does the Coffee and COVID blog. And he feels strongly that we're underestimating incompetence. And I'm like, I started there. I started there, but you see a couple hundred things that all line up with this is an agenda and they want a lot of people dead. And you, there comes a point when you can no longer deny it. So I appreciate you speaking up about that. Where can people follow you? Uh, com is my platform. show.com. You can see my most recent interviews, patient advocacy, hospital forms, such as the directive to physicians form, which is what you do consent to and do not consent to before you go. And then medical power of attorney forms can be found there. My documents, all kinds of stuff, products, you name it. Anything I'm trying to do to try to save humanity from the lies you're being told. And Jeff Childers, uh, I've actually been with him multiple times in Pensacola. Tell that guy hi. I hope he's actually figured out a way to sue hospitals with severe poisoning. But uh, I, I am meeting... I'm meeting him in Orlando over the 24th because when I put stuff together in my mind, just from what I see, I take it to him and I'm like, okay, you need to add this to your piece because, you know, like the dehydration thing, it's it's really hard to convince people that dehydration is part of the protocol. Yeah. And I want to warn everybody right now that in the emergency use authorization, they are only saying remdesivir is the only thing allowed to treat inpatient and outpatient. In hospitals, outside of hospitals, for children, even newborns. But on page eight of the emergency use authorization, it states all parents and caregivers have the right to refuse remdesivir treatment. Don't forget that. You have the right to say no. So so that is why they work so hard to sedate you. And all these people are telling me they're put on um, Ativan or Xanax. And then they bully you. That's another thing that all these stories have in common is they get the person sedated and they're super loopy. And then they say, can I please put you on remdesivir? Mm-hmm. And they and they tell you you're going to die if you don't. Sure. So like if you know they're going to do that on the way in, it probably would give people more courage. And generally speaking, these people do not have their loved ones with them. You right? need to print the medical directive to physicians form on my site, thedoctorartistshow.com. Go to resources, click it, click forms. Print the first two, directive to physicians form. It tells the hospital what you do consent to and do not consent to in the way of treatment for COVID-19. You okay, sign because it, there's, there's a standard of it. The advanced medical directives, as I understand it, it's part of the problem that a lot of people have been using. It actually, and people don't realize it, are giving way too much authority to the hospitals to do whatever they think is best. And now, now we know what they think is best. And so on your site, you feel confident in this one? Oh, yeah, this works. It's phenomenal. It was written up by an attorney, Kelly Sorrell. We have the medical power of attorney from her, this consent form, and it says, very first thing you initial, it states, I don't care if you presume I have COVID. I don't care if you do some diagnostic test and confirm I have COVID. I do not consent to remdesivir or being vented. It also states on number four out of five things you do or do not consent to, that you initial, 
I don't know if you know this, but almost all hospitals throughout the country right now, their intake forms has in text print. It says by signing this intake form, we can you consent to allowing us, the hospital, to give you the COVID-19 vaccines without your verbal consent. So number four states, I don't care if I get admitted to this hospital or you transfer me to a psychiatric facility. I do not now and I do not ever consent to getting the COVID-19 shots. And if you don't put that in writing, these hospitals are being incentivized to murder you with these protocols. Regardless, they're being hell bent to follow these protocols because they're being paid to. Unless you go in with some document that says, I do not consent this form you sign and you get notarized, which makes it a legal document. You can sue them for battery. You can do whatever you want after that if you supply that beforehand. That's why everybody needs okay. it. We will put the link to that down below. And thank you so much, Dr. Brian Artis, for all your work in the world. You're very welcome. Thank you for all of your work, exposing truth and getting people to share more truth. My pleasure. Looking forward to Florida. Florida.